This is God's word from John 5, starting in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on, you, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And if you do not believe the, his writings, how will you believe my words, the word of the Lord. Spirit of God. Thanks, Hunter. Well, for the season of Epiphany, which is the season that leads kind of right up to Lent, what we've been doing is we're looking at what the Bible says about itself. We're trying to answer that question. What does the Bible say about the Bible? And this is, I think, a really important question, maybe more important than you or I realize, because that, the answer to that question informs how you relate to the Bible. So, for example, if you leave um, right after church today and you say, man, that church is dumb. Redeemer is the worst. That guy up front didn't know anything about mitochondrial DNA. Um, you could say that, and if you said that he doesn't know anything about mitochondrial DNA, you would be right but the reality is, is I don't claim to know anything about mitochondrial DNA, nor do I claim that the Christian faith rests upon understanding mitochondrial DNA. So it's important to pay attention to what does the Bible say about itself? What is it claiming to do and to be, and what is it not claiming to do and to be? Because that, that shapes how you relate to it. So the question I want to try to answer this morning is, what does the Bible say that the Bible is about? if that makes sense. What is the Bible's self-understanding of what the Bible is fundamentally about? That's the question. And to answer that question, uh, to set it up, here's how I want to set this up. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the TV show, uh, the British version of The Office, but they made an American version of that show called The Office. And there's an episode of that show where there's a character named Phyllis who... Um, is having a wedding. She's getting married to the man of her dreams, Bob Vance from Vance Refrigeration. And uh, she decides to ask her boss, Michael, if he would be willing to push her father down the aisle because her father can't walk, he's in a wheelchair. If, she, if he could be the one that pushes the father down the aisle as, as the father's kind of giving her away on the big moment. The reason why she asks her boss if Michael wants to play this role is because she knows that she'll get six weeks off for a honeymoon if she does, but she, you know, that's how it works out. So she asks him to play this role. Michael is ecstatic about this role, and here's what he says. He says, quote, 
I'm co-giving away the bride. Since I pay her salary, it's like I'm paying for the wedding, which I'm happy to do. Um, It's a big day for Phyllis, but it's an even bigger day for me, employer of the bride. (laughs) And so the big day comes, and they're at the church. The music cranks up. Everybody stands up. The doors open in the back, and there's Phyllis, and there's her dad in the wheelchair, and there's Michael, and they're making their way down the aisle, and they get away about halfway down, and the dad kind of waves Michael off, and he stands up out of his chair, and everybody's clapping and freaking out. And the dad walks Phyllis down, and there is Michael by himself with an empty wheelchair, so angry that this man just stole the show from him. And so he makes a big scene, and he drags the wheelchair, you know, really slow. It's banging into all the pews as he's walking by, and he makes his way up to the front, stands up there with all the groomsmen. He announces the, the, the bride and the groom before the, like, the minister does in the wedding. And then you get to the reception, and Michael has prepared a 40-minute-long toast. And here's how his toast begins at the reception. He says, Webster's Dictionary defines wedding as the fusing of two metals with a hot torch. Well, you know something? I think you guys are two metals gold medals. And then he does this. It's just awkward silence, kind of like right now. But, um, um, but uh, I bring that up because here is this moment that Michael has made about him. He thinks this wedding is about him. It's not about him. It's about Phyllis, and it's about Bob Vance from Vance Refrigeration. But he had this idea that this whole deal is about me. And I bring that up because I think a lot of people, when when we come to the Bible, we hear it read, we read it ourselves, we hear it preached at church or ministries or whatever, it, it is our default assumption to assume that it's about me. And here's what I mean by that. It's easy to assume that what the Bible is... It's, it's fundamentally um, telling you how to live your life. So it's got stories and poems and parables and all kinds of stuff in there that basically are just trying to tell you how to live your life, how to be a better person, um, how to manage your money, how to date, how, how to whatever. It's, it is about you. So all of these stories, Adam and Eve and David and Goliath and Daniel and the lions, all of these stories, what they really are is there's a moral lesson to them and you need to learn the lesson. So don't be like Adam and Eve who disobeyed God. You should obey God. Don't be like, uh, or you should be like Daniel who was, you know, he, he trusted God in, in a hard situation. Be like David because he had a lot of courage. So it's easy to relate to the Bible like it's about you. But here's the problem. If you start with that assumption and then you come to the Bible, you start to read it in a lot of, in my opinion, bizarro ways. For example, if you assume that the Bible is fundamentally about you, you might read the Bible like, like it's an instruction manual, like it's just a guidebook on how, to, on how to live your life. So you'll read the Bible and say, okay, what does the Bible say? What are the seven biblical principles on how I get out of debt? Or what is the, um, what is the biblical way to date? What's the biblical way to vote? What's the, what is, you know, how does the Bible say I should be managing my time? And you relate to it like it's an instruction manual. Or if you think the Bible is fundamentally about you, you might relate to the Bible like it's a, uh, like it's a recipe 
Like it's a potions recipe from Professor Snape where it just gives you the formula and it gives you the ingredients. And if you can just master the recipe, then bam, you'll get some awesome stuff. So you say, okay, well, I got to get the right amount of prayer. I'll get the right amount of church attendance. Maybe I'll sprinkle in a dash of uh, volunteering. Maybe throw in a little bit of serving in the nursery and then boom, out will pop a job promotion or out will pop a brand new shiny boyfriend or out will pop, you know, you know some, uh, something. I don't know. Or if you think the Bible is fundamentally about you, uh, you might start to read the Bible as if it is a daily vitamin. I heard somebody once tell me, well, I, I just have found when I wake up and I read the Bible every morning, I just have a better day. So they just, they relate to the Bible like it's a vitamin every morning. Flintstone vitamin, your little supplements. I just, I read the Bible because I feel, because it makes me feel good. I have good days when I read the Bible. Um, or last example, uh, if you think the Bible is fundamentally about you, you might relate to the Bible like it's a magic eight ball. You remember those old toys? I don't even know if they make these anymore. But back in the day, they'd have these big black pool balls. You'd get them as a toy and you would ask it a question. Should I ask Rachel to the dance this weekend, and then you'd shake it up, and you'd flip it over, and it would give you the answer, no, or, you know, whatever. And so it's, it's often, you know, people come to the Bible, and they say, well, should I move to this city or to that city? Should I take this job or that job? Should I, you know, what should I do? And so you kind of take the Bible, and you shake it up and let it fall down, and you kind of close your eyes, and you put your finger on a verse, and you land on Judges chapter 1, verse 6, which says, They pursued the king and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. You're like, well, that, that's not clear. And so the point is, if, if you start with the assumption that the Bible is about you, then you're going to read it in a bunch of weirdo ways. But here's the truth. The Bible's not about you. If the Bible's not about you, well, then what's it about? That's the question I want to try to answer this morning. The one question I want to try to answer, what is Scripture about? So this is not a three-point sermon. It's not a two-point sermon. It's a one-pointer. One and in fact, if you've read the sermon title, you already know the answer. What is Scripture about? Well, let's look at... Um, Let's look at this passage in John 5, and we'll see if we can get there from the passage itself. So here's the story. Here's what's going on in John chapter 5. Jesus is having this conversation with, with some people who are accusing him. They don't like him. They're challenging him. And the reason why is they think that he is immoral, or as my kids would say, that he is sus. They, um, they think that he's a heretic because he's going around telling people, I am equal with God. Uh, they think that he's dangerous. And so they've been plotting, okay, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to figure out how to kill this guy. And so they come to him, and they basically are like, how dare you? How do you have, what proof do you have to be able to say the kind of stuff that you're doing? Who can vouch for this kind of behavior? And so Jesus, right in the, the verses right before this, which I didn't include in your bulletin, but he, he starts listing out all of these different things that bear witness to him. He says, John the Baptist, he, he was bearing witness to me. He says, all of these works that I'm doing, all these miracles, all, this, all of that bears witness about who I am. That, that's, what vouch, that's what can vouch for me. And then you get to this, um, then you get to this passage, and in uh, verse 37, he's like, well, okay, let's talk about the Bible for a second. He says, and the Father himself has borne witness about me. 
but you haven't heard his voice and you don't have his word abiding in you because you don't believe the one he sent. And then listen to this bombshell that he drops in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's saying, uh, you guys read the Bible a lot. You have searched the Scriptures diligently. You've memorized it. You've studied it. You've missed the whole point. You think the Bible's just a bunch of collections of stories and poems and prophecies and things in it. You know what the Bible's about, though? It's about me. It's all bearing witness to me. I mean, that is an insane thing for him to say. But look, in, ca in case it wasn't clear, jump down to verse 46. He says, for if you believed Moses, Moses is the guy that wrote the first five books of the Bible. He says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. In other words, according to Jesus, the main point of the Bible is Jesus. Now, does the Bible tell you how you should live your life? Yes, absolutely. Does the Bible tell you what you should be what you should do? Of course. But that is not fundamentally, first and foremost, what the Bible's about. The Bible is fundamentally, first and foremost, about Jesus. There's this really fascinating story in Luke chapter 24. I encourage you to read it later. It's the story of these two disciples, two people who are leaving the city of Jerusalem, right after kind of all the big hubbub with Jesus and the crucifixion and all of that. And so they're leaving the city. They're on their way to this other town called Emmaus. And the resurrected Christ shows up and is walking with them. And for whatever reason, they don't, they're kept from being able to recognize him. But Jesus asks these two people, okay, y'all seem really distraught. Y'all seem really discouraged and downcast. Like, what's going on? And they're like, bro, have you, have you, you must not have been around the past few days because a lot of stuff just went down in Jerusalem. There was this guy, and he was the one that all of our hopes were resting on. We had hoped that he would be the one that was going to restore Israel and redeem all things and make all things new again, but he wasn't. He was crushed on a cross. They arrested him, and he died. All of our hopes are dashed. And it says that as they're walking along talking, Jesus decides to do this in-depth Bible study with them. And here's what it says. This is chapter 24, verse 27. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. He just for hours, who knows how long, just walks story after story, passage after passage. That's about me. That's about me. Oh, that story, that's about me. That psalm, that's about me. That whole idea right there, me, 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 me. Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. The Bible's about Jesus. Now, what does that look like? Let me give you one example. Here's, here's where the rubber starts to hit the road here. Let's take one story. Let's take the story of Adam and Eve, famous, familiar to a lot of people, Genesis 2 and 3. You got Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And God comes to them and says, I want you to enjoy and eat from every tree, every bush, everything that you see. It's, it's, it's all available to you. Eat whatever you want. There's one tree, though, that I don't want you to eat from. If you eat from that tree, you're going to die. So obey me or you'll die. And if you know the story, they disobey. 
and they introduce death and destruction and carnage and damage into the world. It's a sad, terrible story. That's the, the, the opening story of the Bible. Sad. Now, what's that story about? If you say, well, that story is fundamentally teaching me a lesson. It's about me, and the lesson is you really should obey God or you'll screw up your life. You'll destroy your life. That's the lesson. Okay, let's just play that out for a second. Let's say that's the point. Obey God or you'll die. Um, try it. Just try. Leave here and say, I'm going to really give it a shot this week. I'm going to perfectly obey God. Otherwise, I'm going to, my life's going to get destroyed. And now ask yourself the question, why are you obeying God? Out of self-protection, out of self-interest, I don't want my life to blow up. I don't want my life to be ruined, so I'll do the right thing. I'll jump through the hoops. I'll do whatever. You're driven by uh, selfishness. You're driven by fear. And what happens when you fail? Which, of course, you will because we all fail. We can't perfectly obey God. What happens when you fail? You will feel an avalanche of guilt and shame. And what will be your response then? Your response will be, well, I got to try harder. I got to double down my efforts. I really need to crank up the discipline. I need to work on my habits. I got to get a routine. I got to get an accountability partner. I've really got to try hard. And so you really press into your willpower and you try really hard. And then inevitably you fail again and you feel guilty and you feel shame. And then you say, okay, I've really got to try hard. I've really got to double down. And so you go back to the willpower. I'm going to try hard. And you're just on this hamster wheel of guilt and pressure, and failure, and trying hard, and then guilt, and then trying hard, and guilt, and trying hard. And so many people think that's what Christianity is. It's just you entering into this vortex of guilt and trying hard. And no wonder so many people are de-churching and deconstructing their faith, because that's miserable. Nobody wants to do that. But yet so, so many times... We associate that with Christianity. But what if that story is not about you? Then what do you do? What is the story then? Okay, so you've got Adam and Eve, and they failed in the garden, and that just shows you, it sets you up to long for a truer and a better Adam and Eve to come. And so centuries later, there is one that comes, the, the new Adam. And um, just like them, he finds himself in a garden. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and God comes to him and says, not obey me or you'll die. He says, obey me and you'll die, because what obedience is, is going to cost you your very life. Do I need to switch to this because my mic's being funky? Sorry. We're back. Um, so obedience is, uh, for Jesus, means that it's going to cost his life. And so what does he do? He doesn't rebel against God. He doesn't disobey. He says, um, not my will, but your will be done. He passes the test in the garden, and then the very next day he goes to the cross, and he perfectly obeys God, and it costs him his life. He's dying in place of the very people that have failed, even though he, he passed the test, even though he was perfect. So what you have is you have a better Adam and Eve who is accomplishing what the first Adam and Eve could never do. 
He's paying their penalty, and he's paying for the penalty of everybody that came after them, you and me who continue to fail God over and over and over. When you hear that story in that way, that this sets you up, it points you towards what you really need, a truer and a better Adam and Eve. When you know that story and you can connect it to the fact that that means I am that loved by the God of the universe, that he would come for people who are rebels, who disobey him, and he has paid for all of my failures, all of the ways that I have disobeyed, all the ways that I have screwed up. That means that I am perfectly secure in his love because it's not based on what I've done. It's based on what he has done. When those things start to click inside of you, you know what that does? It starts to, it starts to motivate you to want to obey this God, to please him. Not because you're afraid he's going to smite you or your, your life's going to get destroyed. You're, you're not motivated by self-protection and fear and shame and guilt and willpower. You're motivated by joy and gratitude. You're motivated by worship. It's a radically different experience. So here, here's, the, here's the main point here. The Bible's about Jesus. That means every image, every character, every story, every poem, every prophecy, ultimately it all points to him. He's the true lamb. He's the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true temple, the true shepherd, the, the true everything. It's all, it's all about him. Now, you may be sitting here, and you may not be a Christian, and you're thinking, okay, so the Bible's not about me. It's about Jesus. Cool. Who cares? Fair question. Um, let me try and draw out two implications of this real quick, and then I'll be done. The two implications are this. If, if it is true that the Bible is fundamentally about Jesus, then that means that Christianity is, one, fundamentally good news. And second, it means that it is deeply relational. First, it's fundamentally good news. Let me reread um, verse uh, 39. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's talking about life. He's talking about um, fullness and flourishing, and joy, and blessing, and his burden is to say, I want you to have this. You keep searching the Bible, thinking that it's the words themselves will somehow impart that to you. It's not the words themselves. It's me. It's what this book reveals about me. I'm the one that, that gives you life, and I want you to come to me so that you have life. In other words, Jesus's burden is fundamentally to give good news. And so here's what this means. If, if you are um, not a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you consider yourself a regular at, at Redeemer, or if this is your first and last time that you ever stepped foot in here, um, I would like to give you a template to put into your brain so that anytime you interact with a church or a ministry, anytime you hear somebody talking about the Bible or God or Jesus, you have a template. The template in your brain should be this. Is what I'm hearing good news or not? Anytime you go to a church, anytime you're at a ministry, Bible study, whatever, you ask yourself the question, is this good news or is it not? Because I'll tell you, it is really easy to stand behind a pulpit and to use this as a platform to just talk about whatever soapbox issues you want to talk about. 
of uh, here's my hot take on the you know hot topic of the of the day, kind of the you know the the issues of you know society, and you can hear somebody stand up and just tell you what they think about something. They may even use the Bible to support it. And you might leave and say, okay, well, I know what that church's particular political agenda is, or I know um, what that person thinks about this or that social issue. But was it good news? It may be helpful. It might be interesting. But was it good news? I also know um, how easy it is in ministry to use the Bible to just hammer people, beat people up with shame. Like, hey guys, y'all need to step it up. Have you seen how much God has done for you and you're not gonna do anything for him? Shame on you. Now, it may be true that we need to, quote, step it up, but is that good news? Good news, when you hear good news, it's just good. You just feel full from it. So that's the question that I would like for you to ask. Anytime you're in a church, Bible study, ministry, podcast, listening to whatever, somebody talking about Christianity, is this good news or is it not? Because if it's not, then I think it's out of sync with the Bible's claims about itself. And if you have the opportunity, I'd encourage you to talk to that leader or avoid it altogether. Because Christianity is fundamentally good news. I want you to have life. Second, second implication of this, um, if it's true that the Bible is all about Jesus, this means that um, Christianity is deeply relational. Here's what I mean. Uh, You remember Harry Potter book two, Chamber of Secrets? Um, If you're unfamiliar, there's a character named Ginny Weasley. She gets her hands on this magical diary, and all the pages are blank. It's just completely empty. And so she writes in it. So she writes a thought down, and then she discovers, oh, what she just wrote, it just kind of disappears. And then words that she didn't write reappear, like somebody's talking to her. And she begins to write and realize, okay, she's, she's interacting with somebody else. It's kind of like a wizard version of texting. And so she's texting with this thing, and these words are kind of appearing, and um, spoiler alert, at the end of this story, the words that she's been interacting with, the, the, the person behind those words starts to take on human form, starts to come into existence before her. And so she realizes she's not just interacting with words, she's interacting with a person behind those words, this person who's drawing near to her. I should note that that person is trying to kill her. But for our purposes this morning, in a similar way, but not the same exact way, when you're interacting with the words of Scripture, you're interacting with a person. You're drawing near to the person of Jesus, and through that act, he's drawing near to you. In fact, this, look at it again, and, and this is why in verse 40, he says, you refuse to come to me. He's saying, I want you to come to me. Come to me as I am revealed through this book, through these words. In other words, what is at the heart of Jesus, what is at the heart of Christianity is a deeply personal interaction and relationship with God himself. 
When you read the Bible like this and you start to, you start to see Jesus, you start to see that, th that this thing is really about it's revealing Jesus with whom I am to come to and connect with and commune with, you go from relating to God as if he's a concept to relating to God as if he's a friend. You go from, okay, I'm interacting with interesting spiritual data to actually interacting with your creator and your redeemer. That's the point, is communion with a person. In fact, I, I read this recently. I can't remember where I read it from, but somebody said, uh, you can boil down the whole Christian life really down to two steps. Step one is to go to Jesus. And step two is repeat step one. What happens when you go to Jesus in faith? Well, according to verse 40, you know what you get? You get life because you get him. You bring him your doubts and your fears and your wounds and your insecurities and your regrets and your shame and your secrets. You come to him with that. You know what you get? Him, his mercy. His kindness, his forgiveness, his grace, his reminder of, of his unending, bottomless pit of love for you. That's what you get. So go to Jesus. That's really good news. Let's do that now. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we turn our attention towards Jesus, and I know not all of us in this room even know what to think about him, know what to think about this. But Father, I pray that you would give all of us uh, deeper faith. Open up our eyes to see the beauty and the believability of him, that we would come to him in this uh, mysterious way as he is revealed in this book, as he is revealed through these words. I pray, Father, that you would give us more and more and more of him that we might drink deeply from, from the ocean of his grace and his kindness for people like us, people who rebel, people whose faith is fickle, people who are weak and wounded and sick and sore. Commune with us as we seek your face. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.